from New York, this is Democracy Now! Donald Trump is going to be in Atlanta sometime in the next few days for his arraignment and a mugshot. And uh, he's out, he'll be out on $200,000 of bond, which is great for him because he's got the money. But a lot of people in this town can't make a $5,000 bond, and some of them die in jail because of it. Donald Trump's bond has been set at $200,000 in Georgia, where he faces charges for running a criminal enterprise to overturn the 2020 election. He'll surrender Thursday. We'll speak to Atlanta reporter George Chitty, who was subpoenaed to testify to the Fulton County Grand Jury about stumbling on a meeting of fake electors and being thrown out. Then to South Africa, where a major summit of the BRICS nations is getting underway. This BRICS summit is particularly important as it is being held as the world is confronted by fundamental challenges that are bound to determine the course of international events for years to come. And then to Ecuador, where voters have passed an historic referendum to block oil extraction in Amazon's Yasuni National Park. Community is a community that has been suffering from the oil industry since before I was even born. And that is the reality of many, many indigenous and Amazonian communities uh, in Ecuador uh, and, and in the other Amazonian countries. We'll speak with Ecuadorian indigenous leader Elena Gualenga. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden visited the fire-devastated Hawaiian island of Maui Monday, pledging federal support for rebuilding efforts. Biden's visit came as the death toll from this month's fire in the historic town of Lahaina rose to 115, with more than 800 people still missing. But I also want all of you to know the country grieves with you, stands with you, and will do everything possible to help you recover rebuild and respect culture and traditions when the rebuilding takes place. Climate groups are calling on Biden to declare a climate emergency in the wake of the Maui fires to protect survivors from predatory land grabs. Koniela Ng, national director of the Green New Deal Network and a native Hawaiian from Maui, said, quote, I hope President Biden will protect displaced residents from the disaster capitalists seeking to profit off their grief by instituting a moratorium on foreclosures and subsidizing mortgage and rent payments for at least a year, he said. Meanwhile, the National Weather Service has issued excessive heat warnings from Texas to Illinois, where the heat index in Chicago could top 115 degrees Fahrenheit this week. On Monday, Democrats on the House Oversight Committee called for a federal investigation into conditions at prisons during this summer's unprecedented heat wave. In Texas, where most prison cells lack air conditioning, at least 41 prisoners have died of heart-related or undetermined causes so far this year. In Russia, at least two people were injured Monday as Russian air defense systems shot down four Ukrainian drones near Moscow. The attacks prompted officials at Moscow's four main airports to suspend air traffic, canceling dozens of flights. 
Elsewhere, a Ukrainian drone struck and heavily damaged a Russian supersonic bomber at an airbase south of St. Petersburg. Meanwhile, the governments of Denmark and the Netherlands have pledged to give U.S.-made F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine after the Biden administration recently gave approval to the transfers. On Monday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky traveled to Copenhagen, where he spoke outside the parliament to a large crowd of supporters. Dear friends, today we are confident that Russia will lose this war. Zelensky's trip comes as The New York Times reports the total number of Ukrainian and Russian troops killed or wounded in the 18 months since Russia invaded is nearing a half a million, a figure that does not include civilian deaths and injuries. The Times cited unnamed U.S. officials for the figures, which estimate 120,000 Russian troop deaths and 70,000 Ukrainian soldiers killed in action. In Thailand, real estate tycoon Sreta Tavisin is poised to become prime minister after he won the backing of a coalition of conservative and pro-military parties in the Thai parliament. Tavisin was the sole candidate considered by lawmakers Monday after Thailand's constitutional court in July suspended lawmaker Pita Limjaranrat, a top candidate for prime minister whose liberal Move Forward party garnered the most support in May's national elections. Hours ahead of Monday's vote, the former Thai prime minister, billionaire Thaksin Shinawat, returned to Thailand following 15 years spent in self-imposed exile after he was ousted in a 2006 military coup. He was jailed shortly after his arrival to face charges of abuse of power. Former President Trump has agreed to turn himself in to authorities at Atlanta, Georgia's Fulton County Jail Thursday to face 13 felony charges related to his efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Trump's legal team says it's agreed with the Fulton County District Attorney's Office to set bail at $200,000. Trump is expected to enter a not guilty plea one day after he's scheduled to skip the first debate of Republican Party presidential candidates televised by Fox News Wednesday night. Republican state lawmakers in Georgia have invoked a new state law signed by Governor Brian Kemp earlier this year that could allow them to sanction or even remove Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis from office as she pursues the case against Trump and his 18 co-defendants. We'll have more on the criminal case against Trump and his allies in Georgia by speaking to Atlanta reporter George Chitty, who is subpoenaed to testify before the grand jury after headlines. In other Trump news, Former Vice President Mike Pence and former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows have recently undercut Trump's claim that Trump declassified documents he took with him when he left the White House. Pence told ABC News Sunday he was never made aware of any broad-based effort to declassify documents, while Meadows has reportedly made a similar claim to investigators working for special counsel Jack Smith. On Monday, Jack Smith's office sharply rejected Trump's call to delay the start of his federal election interference trial until 2026, accusing Trump's legal team of grossly exaggerating the volume of evidence being brought against Trump. In Texas, 
A federal judge in Austin is hearing arguments today on a lawsuit filed by the Justice Department against Republican Governor Greg Abbott over Texas's installation of buoys in the Rio Grande River along the U.S.-Mexico border. The judge could issue an emergency injunction that would force Texas to remove the floating barrier within days. Texas authorities were reportedly trying to reposition the buoys ahead of today's hearing after Mexican officials said the barrier, aimed at blocking asylum seekers from reaching the United States, was installed on Mexico's side of the river. Between the buoys, there are circular saw blades. Dozens of asylum seekers, including children, have been severely injured. This is Democratic Congressmember Joaquin Castro during a visit to the border city of Eagle Pass earlier this month. It's incredibly dangerous, incredibly inhumane, and it's the reason that I've said that it's barbaric, uh, because it is. You see that go all along there. People are getting stuck. There was a dead body that was stuck to this last week. Uh, reports of a child that died. Go closer to this razor wire. There's people's clothing that has been stuck to the wire because they've gotten stuck in that wire. In Georgia, Atlanta city officials have announced an intricate signature verifying process that's forced activists campaigning to get a public referendum aimed at stopping a massive $90 million police training complex to delay turning in the tens of thousands of signatures they've collected in support of the measure. Voting rights advocates have denounced the verification practice, saying it can easily disenfranchise voters of color by throwing out authentic signatures perceived to have minimal differences. The city's announcement Monday came just hours after activists opposing Cop City said they gathered more than 100,000 signatures ahead of Monday's deadline to submit the petition. Stop Cop City activists have vowed to continue collecting signatures as a judge granted them more time to turn them in. The move means the referendum may not make the ballot until March when a competitive Republican presidential primary is taking place. In Kansas, a newly released video shows the shocking police raid on the home of the Marion County Records 98-year-old co-publisher Joanne Meyer. An excerpt of the video filmed during the August 11th raid shows Meyer excoriating officers as they search through her documents and electronic devices. Don't you touch any of that stuff. Ma'am. This is my house. I know. Joanne Meyer died the day after the raid. The Marion County record blamed the police action for her death, saying it left Meyer stressed beyond her limits. To see our full coverage of the story, visit democracynow.org. And in California, a beloved shop owner in the San Bernardino Mountains was fatally shot by a man shouting homophobic slurs about a rainbow pride flag hanging outside her business. 66-year-old Laura Ann Carlton died from a gunshot wound Friday evening at her store in Cedar Glen, east of Los Angeles. A 27-year-old gunman blamed for her killing fled the scene and was shot and killed after what officers described as a shootout. Police say the suspect had a history of making hateful and homophobic posts on multiple social media platforms, including X, the site formerly known as Twitter. 
A recent report by the advocacy group GLAD documented at least 356 cases of anti-LGBTQIA hate across the United States between June 2022 and last April. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show in Atlanta, Georgia, where Donald Trump has announced he'll turn himself in at the Fulton County Jail Thursday. Trump's bond has been set at $200,000. This all comes a week after Trump and 18 co-defendants were indicted by a grand jury for running a criminal enterprise to overturn the 2020 election in a case brought by Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Trump has now been indicted four times since late March. But unlike the other indictments, this will be the first time he must pay cash bond. It'll also be the time, the first time, cameras will be allowed in the courtroom. Joining us in Atlanta is George Chitty. Independent journalist in Atlanta writes the Atlanta Objective Substack newsletter and is co-host of the podcast King Slime. He was recently subpoenaed to testify before the Fulton County Grand Jury in the Trump investigation, but did not end up testifying. In December 2020, he stumbled upon a secret meeting at the Georgia State House of Republicans plotting to overturn the election by submitting a slate of fake electors. George Chitty has also reported on the dire conditions inside the Fulton County Jail, where 15 people died last year, including LaShawn Thompson, who was eaten alive by insects and bedbugs in his cell. George Chitty's recent piece for Atlanta Magazine is headlined The Real Behind the Wall, a look inside the infamous, deadly Fulton County Jail. George, welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Before we go to why you were subpoenaed and uh, you're stumbling on that fake electors meeting, let's talk about where President Donald Trump is turning himself in on Thursday. The Fulton, the Fulton County Jail that you've investigated uh, so well. Explain what this jail is all about, why it is so notorious. So it's notorious in part because a lot of people are getting killed in it. Um, the uh, Before the pandemic, the jail might have two or three deaths in a year. Uh, last year, there were 15, um, and they're up to seven this year four in the last 30 days. Uh, the conditions are terrible. Um, the infrastructure is falling apart. Um, and the infrastructure is actually difficult to repair because repair people are afraid to go in because the level of supervision isn't safe, in their opinion. Um, the medical services provider pulled out uh, and had to be dragged back in by the county. Um, they have a tremendous staffing problem, uh, which is sort of emblematic of what's going on in law enforcement in general. But in in Fulton County, it is an acute problem that is getting people killed. Uh, but, George, isn't the responsibility for the conditions in the jail a, a responsibility of the local government in, in uh, Atlanta, which is largely a Democratic uh, administration? Well, that's correct. Um, 
The sheriff is, a, is elected. Um, the sheriff is a Democrat. The mayor is a Democrat. Uh, the city's administrative bodies are all run by Democrats for the most part. Um, like we're talking about a systemic problem that is expressing itself, uh, you know, in a problem in the jail. Um, that jail is over full because it's over full with people who largely shouldn't be there. Um, the uh, most common charge for somebody being jailed is criminal trespassing, which could be, you know, painting something on a wall, uh, shoplifting. Five percent of the people in there are in there for shoplifting charges, uh, including the fellow uh, who died last Thursday. Last month, the Justice Department announced it's opened a civil investigation into the conditions in the Fulton County Jail in Georgia. This is Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark. We will examine living conditions in the Fulton County Jail, access to medical care and mental health care, use of excessive force by staff, and conditions that may give rise to violence between people incarcerated at the facility. The investigation will also examine whether the Fulton County Jail discriminates against incarcerated people with psychiatric disabilities. The people incarcerated in the Fulton County Jail are predominantly people of color, with data showing 87 percent of the jail population is black. Um, if you can talk about uh, LaShawn Thompson— who people may remember how he died, but the horror that, for, for the country, um, somewhat blew open or put Fulton County Jail on the map. Again, the place that uh, uh, President Trump is going to turn himself into on Thursday. George. Gotcha. So, LaShawn Thompson was found uh, face down in the toilet in his cell, and he was covered in insects, lice, uh, the uh, people have described him as exsanguinated. That's not exactly correct. That's a bit of hyperbole. Um, but he died in squalor. He died like no human being should. Um, and he died in part because, you know, a, a jailer wasn't checking on him regularly. He was in their psych ward um, and um, they missed him uh, because there was negligence. And plainly there was negligence because the county just settled for $4 million in that case. But he's one of 15 people. Uh, and when you start drilling down into the other deaths that have occurred, two people were murdered. One was strangled in his bed. Um, the uh, people are dying of preventable illnesses. And a lot of it is tied to mental health problems. Uh, the... Um, the jail is the largest mental health provider in this county, and that's a tragedy all on its own and has to has to stop. Uh, George, I'd like to turn to the, the the big headline of the week, obviously in Atlanta and even across the nation, the Rico, uh, the Rico indictments of President Trump and others for the false elect the alleged a false elector plot uh, could you talk about how you came upon this group of fake Republican electors in 2020? Where were you and what happened at that meeting? Sure. The first thing I, I want to say is that I take objection to the characterization of what I did as stumbling upon fake electors. Uh, I was in a room with probably a dozen other journalists, 
And I noticed that one of the people we will describe as a fake elector was in the halls. Um, and I, I questioned why he was there. Um, when he went into a room in the Capitol on December 14th, 2020, um, I realized something was happening in that room. Uh, so I took out a camera. I started a Facebook Live. I walked in uh, and I started asking questions and was summarily thrown out. Uh, but before I was, I, I asked what kind of meeting was happening and I was told it was an education meeting. And plainly, it was not an education meeting. Uh, I was told later by David Schaefer, the Georgia Republican uh, Party leader here, that they had to submit electors in order to maintain their legal case in front of the courts. Uh, that has come into legal question at this point. Um, it is the reason why we're looking at this investigation. It is the reason, in part, that Donald Trump is going to have to walk through that jail on Thursday. Um, the fact that I was lied to became legally important, or so I am told, which is why I was subpoenaed. Um, and I testified in front of the special purpose grand jury one year ago. Uh, I was called last Monday to testify, but I, it, it turned out it wasn't unnecessary. And frankly, I think that's a good thing. And have you been able to tell, uh, of the people that you saw in that meeting, uh, uh, which of them have been indicted or, or were any of them indicted? Oh, in, uh, yeah, in several the of them have been indicted. The one that I'm focused on is Kathy Latham. So the woman in the front of a picture that I've actually posted, and it's been up for three years on Twitter, uh, is Kathy Latham. Uh, she is the chairwoman of the uh, Coffee County Republican Party. She was one of the electors uh, who would have been an elector if the Republicans had won Georgia. Uh, I'm reasonably reasonably certain she is the one who lied to me and said that that was an education meeting. Um, and she's also all over the video of uh, Donald Trump's crew um, basically taking apart the voting machines in Coffee County. Um, that is central to this investigation um, because that act of election interference, uh, like exposed software that made things subject to manipulation, perhaps later, uh, that may be the most dangerous act of, um, you know, uh, that that you can look at in this indictment. <clears throat> George, if you can, as we wrap up this section on, door, on uh, President Trump and what he's being charged with and going into the Fulton County Jail, what's expected to happen? You've just described the most horrific conditions inside this jail. What are we going to know when he walks in? What will he experience? So I'm just scratching the surface of how bad it is in there. Um, but I don't think he's going to experience any of that. Uh, he'll be processed on the first floor uh, in a relatively clean and safe environment. Uh, they're going to lock down the entire area around the jail as soon as he arrives. Nobody gets in or out, not press, not visitors, no one. Um, I don't expect him to be there more than five minutes um, but he will have a mugshot taken. Um, he'll be weighed. There'll be a medical processing. The sheriff has pledged that he will be treated like anybody else in this regard. 
uh, that has to be processed into the jail. Um, but he's not going to experience any of it. And I find it fascinating that in this moment, when you have a former president who might have to set foot in a jail as a prisoner, that suddenly we care about the conditions of that jail. Um, not you, of course. You worry about this sort of thing because you are decent and kind. But the rest of the world is waking up to this, and I'm gratified to see it. Um, George, I also want to ask you about grassroots efforts in Atlanta to block the construction of Cop City, that massive $90 million police training complex that will be the largest in the country. Organizers um, planning on submitting over 100,000 signatures to force a ballot referendum on the project, but activists put off submitting the signatures apparently on Monday. We're trying to piece all this together after Atlanta city officials announced an intricate signature verifying process that will cost a fortune. Stop Cop City activists have vowed to continue collecting signatures as a judge granted them more time uh, to turn them in. If you can talk about what's going on here, you've covered it. Also, the number of protesters charged with domestic terrorism. And was the Fulton County DA, uh, Fannie Willis, involved with those charges, not to mention the bond group um, that was also charged? So, Funny Willis really isn't involved in any of this. This is all coming out of Chris Carr's office. That's the attorney general here in Georgia. Um, and the dynamic between the city of Atlanta and the state with regard to how they're treating uh, these protesters, these activists, is fascinating and deserves more attention. Uh, 104,000 signatures, which is close to double the number of votes anybody uh, elected in office in Atlanta has ever received. Um, the mayor is on record saying that this signature match process that they're planning to use, or I'm told they're planning to use, uh, is racist. Uh, and the idea that they're going to pull that out speaks to how committed the city is to seeing this police training center, Cop City, get built. They've, I'm amazed at how much political capital they've burned on this, to be perfectly honest. Um, fact of the matter is, if they've got 104,000 signatures, their threshold is 58,000 signatures, give or take. Um, I strongly suspect they'll make it unless there was something happening that isn't immediately visible to us. Um, I find the city's move surprising. And last question. We just have 30 seconds. And that is, uh, when you were responding to the question of being subpoenaed, you were subpoenaed, but you ultimately, though you waited sitting there to testify, you weren't called. You said, yeah. fortunately, um, you didn't have to testify. Why? Journalists shouldn't be getting into grand jury rooms. Um, I am not an agent of the government. I am a critic of the government. It is necessary to be adversarial to some degree. Um, my not having to testify on Monday, to some degree, preserves that ability to be adversarial. Um, and frankly, it makes my sources feel a lot better. George Chitty, independent journalist in Atlanta, will link to your recent piece, The Real Behind the Wall, a look inside the infamous, deadly Fulton County Jail. Next up, a major summit of the BRICS nations, that's Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, is getting underway in Johannesburg. Stay with us.
Time by Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Chinese President Xi Jinping, Brazilian President Lula da Silva, and Indian President Narendra Modi have arrived in South Africa for a major summit in Johannesburg of BRICS. That's the acronym for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Russia is sending Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov after Vladimir Putin decided not to make the trip to avoid facing possible arrest. South Africa is a signatory to the International Criminal Court, which has issued an arrest warrant for Putin for alleged war crimes in Ukraine. And so South Africa would be obligated to arrest him if he arrived there. While the BRICS alliance was formed in 2006 and it appears poised to expand, more than 20 countries have formally applied to join BRICS, and others have expressed interest. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa talked about the importance of BRICS during a speech Monday. This BRICS summit is particularly important as it is being held as the world is confronted by fundamental challenges that are bound to determine the course of international events for years to come. Our world has become increasingly complex and fractured as it is increasingly polarized and competing with each other in various competing camps. We're joined now by Vijay Prashad, director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. His most recent book, co-authored with Professor Noam Chomsky, The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the Fragility of U.S. Power. Vijay Prashad's recent article is headlined, The BRICS Have Changed the Balance of Forces, But They Will Not By Themselves Change the World. If you can explain, Vijay, the significance of this meeting taking place in South Africa right now, and also in the context of what's going on quite far away, but the war in Ukraine. Well, Amy, it's great to be with you. This is the 15th BRICS summit, the first one in person since the summit in Brasilia in 2019, brings together heads of governments of these important countries. Um, Yes, it's true. It's also the first BRICS summit since the war began in Ukraine 18 months ago. Um, It's important to recognize one of the reasons why 
this particular gathering is so important. You know, um, two of the BRICS countries, Russia and China, are members of the Security Council. They are part of the P5, the five permanent members of the Security Council. It's important to point out that the three other members, Brazil, South Africa and India, have long applied to be permanent members of the UN Security Council. In other words, to have a veto. There is no Latin American with a permanent seat on the Security Council. Brazil has asked for that seat. There is no African power on the Security Council with a permanent seat. South Africa has long lobbied for that position. And India is the country with the world's largest population and has for 20 years asked for a place at the Security Council. These are three very important powers that we, in the context of the war in Ukraine have tried to put themselves forward. That is Brazil with a peace plan, South Africa with a plan that has come from leaders of African countries and India taking a, a role uh, through the BRICS, but also the G20 trying to develop a peace plan. These are countries frustrated uh, not to have a seat at the Security Council. And for them, the BRICS is an instrument to push forward their political views, which they feel are not taken seriously, particularly by the Western countries, whom they feel have blocked them from permanent seats on the Security Council. So I think if you're asking about the Ukraine war itself, it's important to see the BRICS in the context of aspirations denied through the UN Security Council, also to some extent aspirations denied through the G20. During the financial crisis when US banks went south, um, there was an argument made by G7 countries that if countries like India, China, Indonesia help liquefy Western banks, the G7 will be wrapped up and the G20 will take its place. That promise was also not put forward. It was not, um, you know, uh, in, in a sense, uh, made real. And the G20 continues to meet, but it's still, in a sense, in the shadow of the G7. All these frustrated political ambitions of large countries like India, Brazil and South Africa, these frustrations run through the BRICS. And that's why this summit is so important. Lula is back on the world stage, committed to make his mark, particularly on the continent of Africa, which this Brazilian president takes very seriously. Uh, Vijay, I wanted to ask you, Democracy Now! had two guests on yesterday uh, to, to also talk about the BRICS summit. And to say the least, both of them were skeptical, or, or practically dismissive of the importance of BRICS. Uh, one of them, uh, Trevor Nguami, uh, said, quote, that this was a that BRICS was projecting a false hope to the masses. And the and the other, Patrick Boyd, the director of the Center for Social Change in at the University of Johannesburg, said that the new applicants were basically a group of, quote, tyrannies car and carbon addicted economies. Uh, you have a much uh, brighter sense of the hopes of BRICS. What's the importance of of the, of the increasing development of BRICS? Could you talk a little bit about its origins, which most people are not aware of? Well, of course, Patrick and Trevor are entitled to their opinions, and I'm sure they have very positive things to say about other things. 
But the fact is that neither of the two of them nor I um, established BRICS, nor in a sense are we able to drive the BRICS agenda. But one, when one analyzes something like BRICS, I think rather than taking a moralistic position towards it, it's important to understand what it's doing. 22 governments have elected to join BRICS one way or the other. Some of them are very complicated countries at this present moment. Saudi Arabia is in a very complicated situation. It's sort of dancing between the worlds. Seven of the 13 members of OPEC have, have applied to join uh, the BRICS. This is very significant for shifts in the world balance. Whether you like it or not, that's a separate issue. Let's first try to understand as best as we can what's happening. Well, the BRICS has its origins in 2003 when India, Brazil and South Africa came together to try to break the World Trade Organization's um, really quite you know, strict approach towards intellectual property rights. India is one of the world's largest producers of pharmaceuticals. Brazil and South Africa at the time were keen to get access to low-priced AIDS drugs, the HIV AIDS cocktail. India could have produ could produce it, but was not able to sell it to these countries at a cut price because of the World Trade Organization's TRIPS regime, the trade-related intellectual property rights. Um, breaking the TRIPS regime through this alliance called IBSA, India, Brazil, and South Africa, that was the origin story of the BRICS. Then in 2006, Brazil, Russia, China, and India had a meeting at the sidelines of the United Nations where they talked about the need for a new monetary and trade order. Um, this was a preparatory discussion. In 2009, these countries come together to launch the BRICS summit. Now, what's really important to understand and why we shouldn't exaggerate the potential of the BRICS, initially, BRICS comes together um, in frustration with what they think of as the leadership of Western countries over the world fiscal and monetary order. Um, the economic crisis of 2006-2007 was pretty shocking for countries like India and China. They had put a lot of their eggs in the basket of the Western economic growth of the U.S. market as the market of last resort. The collapse of the Western financial system of the United States market as the market of last resort allowed these countries to think through their own um, you know, sense of being tied to the U.S. in particular. And they started to look for alternatives. The alternatives were, and there are a number of them, through the BRICS process, certainly, but also through China's Belt and Road, which was a direct reaction to, to the collapse of um, Western financial systems and the U.S. market. In that sense, BRICS is largely a trade block. <coughs> Excuse me. Largely a trade block. The rest is basically an aftermath. And you mentioned the issue of uh, the world monetary uh, uh, system, the importance of the BRICS Bank, the new development bank that is based uh, in China uh, and headed by Dilma Rousseff uh, in terms of breaking the stranglehold or the, the monopoly that uh, groups like the IMF and the World Bank have on, uh, on international finance. Well, you know, it's important when we start looking at the new development bank to understand what the development regime has been 
since 1944, since the Bretton Woods meeting where the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank were created. Um, You see, the IMF, which had pretty interesting origins, commitment to helping countries develop and so on, by the 1970s, had been running a very narrow policy uh, space kind of uh, uh, program, which is to say that they were offering debt to countries struggling to break out of the, the shackles of colonialism. They were offering them debt. This debt was being offered in a very narrow way. Um, it was being offered basically to build, you know, um, uh, to, to continue to allow an economy of export of raw materials and import of of finished products, largely from the West at the time. And what this program, this structural adjustment program, allowed the IMF to do in many of these poor countries is force the countries to cut back on spending for education, healthcare, and so on, and only build up the economy towards export. When these countries went into quite catastrophic debt, a kind of cycle of permanent debt, they began to borrow not for infrastructure, but for debt servicing to pay off their debt. The IMF then was had produced a debt austerity cycle, rather a permanent structure of debt for many countries. What the new development bank was set up to do, and very recently, only in 2015, with $100 billion of capital, it was set up to try to break the Gordian knot tied by the International Monetary Fund, not to lend money for debt servicing, but to lend money for infrastructure. And ever since Dilma Rousseff has come to the helm less than a year ago, she said that the new development bank is going to lend without conditionalities, without telling countries that they can't spend on education or they can't spend on healthcare. This is a huge departure. Now, will they be able to succeed? The bank was only created in 2015. It has barely been working since then. The contingency reserve arrangement, which was to be, um, you know, the substitute for the IMF with, again, $100 billion of capital to itself. The contingency reserve arrangement hasn't even started working yet. People who criticize these institutions without them actually having any time to develop themselves, uh, start building their own history, as it were. I find this premature. Let's see how they go. Let's see if the contingency reserve arrangement will be a substitute for the International Monetary Fund. Dilma Rousseff has said she's interested in um, in, in experimenting with local currency lending. She's interested in using, for instance, currency swaps as an instrument, something that the People's Bank of China has already been doing. She's interested in providing debt, as I said, for infrastructure, not for uh, debt debt payment. That's the one conditionality, I suppose, even though she said no conditionalities. Let these institutions germinate. They're going to meet again and talk about the new monetary system at this BRICS meeting. Let's listen to what they've learned. This is what Trevor Nguane, something else that he said yesterday, he's the Soweto-based activist chair of the United Front, um, speaking about BRICS. Yes. So anti-imperialism is not necessarily anti-capitalism. In other words, you know, uh, Putin, uh, Modi, Ramaphosa, South Africa, they can say certain things against the USA, but it doesn't mean that at home their domestic policies 
favor the poor, favor the working class. So that, that is the big issue for us. Also, uh, there's a level of geopolitics which turns ordinary people into cannon fodder. You know, working class uh, children, sons and daughters being turned into soldiers to fight wars, sometimes proxy wars all over the globe uh, without any real benefit to their class, to their parents, to their communities. That's Trevor Nguane, the Soweto-based activist chair of the United Front. Um, Vijay Prashad, in other cases, I expect that you share some of his analysis. So your thoughts on what he said? Well, to be honest, Amy, I think his is a straw man argument because nobody is saying, and certainly the BRICS don't consider themselves to be an anti-imperialist platform. I mean, these are very large countries in the world. You put together their gross domestic product, the global share of the GDP of the BRICS country is greater than the global share of the GDP of the G7. These operate as large countries. These are not, you know, this is not a socialist block or an anti-imperialist block standing against the West. Quite the contrary. This is a, a group of large southern countries that are basically saying that no longer do they believe that the West's interest is equivalent to their interests. They are putting forward their national, to some extent, their regional interests, um, you know, to the fore. They, they don't any longer want to be, quote unquote, the veranda boys, a phrase used by a Ghanaian politician in the 1960s. They don't want to sit and do whatever the West tells them. They're driving their own agenda. I think it's little absurd to judge them based on a socialistic standard. These are not uh, this is not a socialist block. Now, obviously, one has critiques of the operations of the BRICS states domestically. I mean, look at the Indian government. It has been savaging democracy. It has been going after the farmers and so on. But that doesn't mean that one doesn't have a dialectical understanding of the role of a country like India on the global stage. On the one hand, India is pursuing a full-scale capitalist project against its own people and so on. On the other hand, it is also turning around to the Western countries and saying, your issues are not our issues. I was very interested to see recently um, the, when the U.S., some U.S. congressman said, oh, maybe India should join NATO plus. The Indian foreign minister, foreign minister of a government of the right, uh, Mr. Jay Shankar, said in a television program, India is not interested in the NATO template. I thought that was an interesting statement. Let's take that statement seriously. How do we understand that statement? Well, the way to understand it, there's a kind of new mood that is visible in sections of the global south. In our institute, we are calling this the new non-alignment. You know, when the non-alignment group was created in 1961 in Belgrade, all the countries that came to Belgrade weren't all countries with a socialist agenda. On the one side, you had Fidel Castro's Cuba, led by Dortikos, Prime Minister Dortikos at Belgrade. On the other side, you had very much pro-Western Ceylon, later Sri Lanka, at the meeting. So, you know, this is a non-aligned um, emergence. This is not a socialist emergence. So I think that kind of criticism is literally tilting at windmills. It's a straw man criticism. Might have, you know, bright spots here and there, but it doesn't help you understand what this is. This isn't claiming to be an anti-imperialist bloc. On the other side, it is perhaps indicating um, a kind of 
new non-alignment. And what I was interested in is the statement made by UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres at the release of a report called A New Agenda for Peace. At that event, Antonio Guterres said that the post-Cold War world has ended. The post-Cold War world. That means the world uh, that was created after 1991. He said that world has ended. And he said we're in a new period. And he said some people are calling this the era of multipolarity. Maybe. I think it's premature to name something right now. We're in a new era. Well, let's try to understand that new era. It's certainly not a great era of anti-imperialism, but it might be the emergence of a new non-alignment. And Vijay, I have one last question. We only have about a minute, but uh, you mentioned India, but China has always uh, has also been at the focal point of a lot of the uh, media attention about aggressiveness in the world. Uh, and you have made the point uh, repeatedly that there is a lot more uh, democratic uh, debate going on in China, a richness of debate that most Americans are not exposed to. And you have tried to raise some of those issues on the world stage. Could you talk about that? Well, of course, I would love to talk about that because this itself is raises eyebrows. People get suspicious of you when you merely say people in China, a country of 1.4 billion, have a range of political opinions. If you just go to Billy Billy, if you go and read Chinese periodicals, there's a range of opinion, including of the BRICS, including of countries that participate in the Belt and Road Initiative. There are some sections in China who think this is a waste of time. China is a very strong economy. Some of these other countries simply not able to pull their weight. Why is China bothering with them? I mean, you know, recently Xi Jinping said China is an ocean. Other countries might be like, you know, pebble, little puddles. Uh, an ocean might have turbulence, but at the end of the day, it's still an ocean. This kind of attitude is there in China, of course. Um, and so if you believe that, you'd wonder, why are you bothering with Argentina? Why would you bother with the United Arab Emirates? You know, you should only play with the very big players in the world. There are other opinions out there, very strong opinions, which say, no, China must play a role in the global south. China has enormous surpluses. It must lend for infrastructural development and not for debt repayment and so on. This is an interesting period wherein there are lots of debates and the BRICS meetings are places where a great deal of debate happens. This is not a place where people just come and all nod and agree. It's a place of great debate. Dilma Rousseff has said repeatedly, she is going to Johannesburg to discuss and debate the importance of local currencies, pushing the idea that people need to trade in their own currencies. They shouldn't be mediated merely through the dollar. And I think these are rich and important discussions. I'm actually just surprised how little these discussions carry over into the West. Vijay Prashad, I want to thank you so much for being with us, director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. We'll link to your new article, The BRICS Have Changed the Balance of Forces, But They Will Not By Themselves Change the World. In 20 seconds, we go to Ecuador, where voters have passed a historic referendum to block oil extraction in the Amazon's Yasuni National Park. Stay with us.
Anachagra by Humas Apas. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We end today's show in Ecuador, where voters Sunday overwhelmingly supported a historic referendum blocking oil extraction in the Amazon's Yasuni National Park, the largest protected area in Ecuador, with massive petroleum reserves crossing through indigenous Yasuni land. The effort was spearheaded by indigenous leaders and environmental defenders. This comes as Ecuadorans also took to the polls for a snap presidential election that saw leftist Luisa Gonzalez placed first ahead of a runoff election in October. At least three political leaders were killed, assassinated ahead of the election. For more, we go to Puyo, Ecuador, to speak with Elena Gualinga, a youth Quechua Sariaku environmental activist who campaigned for the referendum and grew up in the remote Quechua Sariaku community in the Ecuadorian Amazon. Elena, it's wonderful to have you with us. Can you talk about the significance of this vote? Hi, yes. This vote, um, first of all, this referendum was supposed to take place 10 years ago. And because of corruption, it didn't happen. And now, finally, 10 years later, it was passed. And there was a lot of uncertainty of what the results would be. However, Today, Ecuador has really shown that Ecuador is a country that is committed to protecting the Amazon rainforest and to protecting indigenous peoples. It sets a crucial precedent for all indigenous territories in the Amazon, as well as for the world, because this is the first time that people actually get to vote on an oil project, let alone an existing oil project. And now this oil project has to exit even though they still have, they're still active in that territory. It's really, really important uh, on a national level, but I think also for for the world, I mean, a country like Ecuador that, um, you know, has been dependent on oil for many, many years economically decides to vote out uh, an, a, oil in the Amazon really shows that that's the way that we should be going into. And, and Elena, this uh, this is a, a very personal story for you. You grew up in a remote community in the Ecuadorian Amazon. Tell us about your community and, and why you have said that uh, being an environmental activist, uh, it was not a choice for you. I grew up in Sarayaku, which is a community here in the Ecuadorian Amazon. We fought oil when I was a child. And I witness everything that happens when big oil tries to come into your community without consent. And I mean, what was happening in Yasuni was happening um, when they wanted to start exploit oil there. It was happening around the same time as my community was able to kick out the oil company uh, from our territory. So this was a really interesting time as well, where we actually grew up um, witnessing what was happening to Yasuni 10 years ago when they allowed oil exploitation as well as we were able to protect our territories. And now 10 years later, we're able to protect this, um, the Yasuni territory as well, which, you know, is is incredibly um, remarkable in the way that it's been done because it's through popular vote and we have millions of people who have actually backed this up. So, I mean, yes, of course, this has been very emotional for everyone who has been involved in it, and especially for those who come from the Yasuni territory and have been fighting for this for over 10 years, trying to protect their their lands.
And can you talk about um, how this is a blow to the Ecuadorian president, Lasso, and the significance of the region, the Yasuni Forest, one of the most biodiverse places on Earth, and the oil company that's being kicked out, Elena? The oil company that's being kicked out is a state-owned company, Petro Ecuador. Um, they only have one year left of their contract. So basically, the referendum is to see if um, there is a new contract or if the contract is ended. The government has been a little unclear on where they actually stand. Of course, they've been promoting the no vote, but there are many um, people within government that have stayed very silent on this, which has been surprising. I think what's more interesting than the, um, the uh, I guess, like the, the response of, of the government is the response of the new candidates, because at the same time, there was uh, presidential elections. The um, Luisa Gonzalez has been clearly in favor of the no vote and, and against the protection of this place because um, her party was the party that actually allowed oil exploitation in Yasuni. And her opponent, Daniel Novoa, is, has pronounced himself in favor of the yes vote, in favor of protecting it. Um, so it'll be really interesting also to see how they in i guess in 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 the second round of the elections will defend um the yes vote and the no vote because now whichever one wins has to um you know comply with what the ecuadorian people voted which is to protect this place and that um and create a plan for uh the oil company's exit i think that's much more interesting because um the no vote has been you know there's been a really, really hard campaign from uh, Luisa Gonzalez's side and her and her party and her team. And so you take the opposite position, just to be clear, with the yes and the no vote. Um, what parts are able to be exploited by petroleum company, Elena? Unfortunately, the, in, within the Yasuni National Park, there are, um, besides this, the one that's called Yasuni Tete, which was in question in this particular referendum, there are still eight oil blocks that are active. And in, um, and uh, I guess next to them, there are 13, or outside of the National Park, there are 13 oil blocks that are still being exploited. Um, yesterday, we got the news that uh, Waurani Youth, that um, usually they their I guess their school fees and university fees get paid by the oil company. Um, now they're not getting paid by the oil company or the, their school fees. Um, we have 10 seconds. Scholarships, their scholarships are not getting, you know, they're not being covered by the oil companies anymore. How even though within the Waurani territory, there are still 10 oil blocks. So there was a there was a. A lot of confusion on why the provinces where there are oil blocks actually were the only ones that voted against this, where they had a majority. Elena, of we're going to leave it there, but we're going to continue after the post show with an interview in Spanish. Elena Gualenga speaking to us from Ecuador. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.